Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast, where you can learn everything you need to know about sustainable and ESG investing from leaders in the field. My name is Paul Ellis, and I'm your host for these programs about developments in this fast-growing industry. Climate experts are telling us that planet Earth is in code red. And most of us know what code red means for the environment. It means more storms, fires, floods, droughts, and unprecedented heat waves across the globe. But what does code red mean in the financial markets? For investors and for advisors. For one thing, it means that you better understand that a great repricing is already in motion that is affecting all regions, asset classes, and sectors. Because if you don't get this, you're putting your clients' investments at risk and missing out on the many opportunities that come with the transition to a low-carbon economy. My friend Jeff Gitterman is on the podcast today. Jeff is one of the smartest advisors I know, an expert who's always ahead of the trends, and his passionate advocacy for bringing climate solutions to investors inspires my own work. His official title is co-founding partner and creator of Sustainable Impact and ESG Investing Services at Gitterman Wealth Management. And on today's program, Jeff is going to share with us the major takeaways from his recent conference, The Great Repricing, Financial Advice in the Age of Climate Change. Hello, Jeff, and welcome back to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Always a pleasure, Paul. Thanks for having me. Yeah, glad you could join me today. After your conference, you published a white paper with the same of the same name, The Great Repricing, Financial Advice in the Age of Climate Change. A number of the conference speakers contributed to this white paper also. And, you know, I attended the conference and I was so impressed with both the climate science and the investment strategies that were presented. You had experts from NASA, capital market asset managers, and institutional investors all focused on the global impacts of climate change. So is there a consensus among all these various experts related to the impact of climate change on business activities? Well, let's start, I think, with there's a consensus that it's a code red, right? I think that is where the consensus starts. And then each of the experts that we brought to the forefront was looking at different asset classes and the risks of both physical risk climate change and transition risk climate change on those specific sectors. And consensus is tough because there's so many variables that are having to be factored in at the same time. You know, what is the warming scenario that's most likely? Coming out of COP26, there's pretty good evidence by Climate Tracker that we're on target if we meet all the commitments, which is a big if, um, from COP, that we're on target for 2.4. And 2.4 warming scenario is already code red. I mean, it's, it, it's bad. Um, now, how that impacts all different asset classes is what is not that simple to quantify because there's a lot of data that is available and out there to start measuring these kinds of risks, but it's not that cut and dry. You know, you don't exactly know where does 2.4 hit? Does it drive risk in markets in the Northwest? Does it drive more risk in markets south of the equator? 
And what we're finding, I think, you know, the wake up call of not just COVID, but all the severe 20 and 21 climate disasters that we had, is just a huge wake up call that we just know that there's risk inherent in the market that we did not expect before. And there's consensus among everyone I speak to that those risks are today risks and not 2050 risks, as was posed by lots of prior reporting. Okay. Now, Jeff, you just mentioned in your comment both physical and transition climate risks. Uh, I'm not sure that our listeners know what the difference is or what what the definitions of physical and transition risk are. Uh, can you help us out with that and maybe give us an example of each? Yeah, so let's start with physical risk. So physical risk is kind of easy to see, especially over the past couple of years. It's more storms and it's more droughts. Um, so water, which is a big factor, there's either too much of it or too little of it. And, and that's a huge risk for food supplies, food sources, where it's a shortage. Um, and it's also a huge risk for supply chains when there's too much of it and roads are closed or um, fields are you know, swamped or cattle is lost, as you know, we saw in 2019 in the Midwest storms. Um, but also heat. Um, I think what most people miss, there's always this big debate among climate change deniers that wealthy liberals are building shore houses still. <laughs> that, that's the response I hear most often from um, people that are trying to be talk about the fact that climate change isn't real. Well, you know, Bill Gates wouldn't be building a shore house if climate change was real. But what most people don't realize is that while sea level rise is a very slow process, heat waves is a much faster process and that more people die annually from heat um, exposure than from any other physical risk. So you think about, you know, floods and droughts, bigger storms, heat waves, that that's your really your physical risk that you have to be aware of. And then climate transition risk is this idea that we're going to transition to a renewable energy or a non-fossil fuel-based economy. Right now, we are globally a fossil fuel-based economy. And if we're going to convert from that to renewable, um, you know, solar, even hydrogen, nuclear, any of these other resources, there's a transition that's going to take place that's going to dramatically affect employment, you know, people that work at coal plants, people that work for oil companies, pricing on these companies. Um, there was recently a large European company tried to divest its coal plants and, you know, usually get, you know, 20 times EBITDA on a long-term run of whatever, you know, an energy resource is generating. I mean, they couldn't get three or four cents on the dollar because the demand for people that want to invest directly in, in coal at this point is almost non-existent. Um, so it's this transition, stranded assets, what's going to happen to the coal and oil that's in the ground that companies own. You have to understand, people own these reserves. They're carrying these reserves on their balance sheets as being worth X. And in a transition economy where we no longer use fossil fuels to the same degree, that price is now Y. What is that differential? That's stranded asset risk. So you have these two simultaneous risks. And you know, from an investment standpoint, the bigger focus the last five or 10 years has been on the transition risk. 
um, you know, low carbon ETFs and funds that are fossil fuel free, portfolios that are fossil fuel free. And, and people were generally ignoring the physical risks because there was this understanding in most of the science reports that these were 2050 problems and human beings are terrible at dealing with problems that aren't like a punch to the face. Like anything more further away than that, I can put off dealing with. So, you know, people were avoiding it. But from 2018 on, we've seen claims of insurance companies for natural disasters, you know, be in the red every single year since 18. And right. I, I don't think, you know, we're coming back from that. So, you know, between the fires in Northern California, the droughts in nor the Northwest, the storms in Houston, we're, we're facing a new reality that physical risk is here today. And that's what we've been focused on as a shop for the past five or six years. We believe strongly that the physical risks were actually going to come before the transition risks because governments would be slow to move and and agree upon different you know policies and agreements. So we we expected that physical risks would be the more prevalent initial risks. So now, when you're putting portfolio strategies together to a avoid climate risks and b take advantage of the opportunities that are the opposite side of the coin from those risks in general how are investors uh, looking at this and how are you for example as a as a, an advisor uh, to many investors thinking about how those portfolios should be constructed yeah so this is you know, definitely early in the race, I would say. Um, investors are still most focused on divestment issues. I did a poll recently on LinkedIn where I asked, you know, what is your preferable investment strategy for dealing with climate change? Is it divestment, activism through engagement, or new technologies? And that poll came back 68% new technologies and about 24% or 30, almost 30%. Um, for engagement through activism and, and only about five or six percent for divestment. So people are starting to think about it differently, but it, it's still around mitigation as a strategy. How do we mitigate climate change? What we understood, you know, really years ago is that while mitigation is important, we were late, unfortunately, on mitigation, not we as a firm, but we as a world. And adaptation strategies, adapting to climate change, to more storms, more droughts, more floods, was critical in risk and opportunities in portfolios. And, and I, I hate to even use that word. It just, it just grinds against me so bad when we talk about opportunities from climate change. But it, the truth is that there are companies that will benefit from these risks like you said the opposite side of risk is you know there's there's advantage or opportunity so there are companies that will take advantage of that so we looked for companies like wellington is a good example that had partnered with companies um i'm sorry nonprofits like woods hole now called woods well in new york city the leading climate science center um in the u.s for thinking about these risks and opportunities so that they, it's really the first direct partnership of a wealth management firm with a climate center to look for what are the nuances of what companies will see advantage from this world and what companies do we want to de-risk from because of this world. But also 
I mean, look, sustainable infrastructure has been a huge theme for us. Water has been probably our number one theme. It's it's the best performing strategy that we have this year is our water fund, uh, water asset management. Uh, and you know Matt, you know really well. They do a great job on yes. water. Um, but there's new ideas too. How do you look at companies from the idea of water usage? So you know a fund like Water Asset Management is specifically making bets on water, specifically utilities and delivery of you know clean water. Um, where there are people that are now starting to look at water as a risk factor in any company across indexes, the S and P 500, the Acqui. Because companies that really are in touch with their water usage, trying to reduce their water usage, understanding their water risks um, in the long run are also typically companies that use less carbon, um, not surprisingly, but probably long-term better bets. Um, I mean, water is irreplaceable. Uh, it's uh, I got uh, yelled at for this on my last uh, TV interview that I was doing with Thomas Schumann, but... You know, I've heard people say that that water is, you know, the only irreplaceable commodity. And he mm. said water is not a commodity. And he's right. Water is not a commodity. It's a resource that we can't live without and should be treated as such. So these types of views and how you combine them with traditional investing and risk is what we are most focused on as a firm. You know, how do we embed climate as the number one theme? without ignoring all of the rest of the metrics um, yeah. in typical investing. Now, in general, Jeff, how are firms like Wellington doing compared to more traditional indices or portfolio strategies when it comes to these issues uh, being addressed more specifically for investors? We're seeing thematic climate funds outperform their benchmark indexes over the past couple of years, um, even more so than traditional managers. Um, I think we're in a time where active management, thematic active management especially, has a huge place. I think the you know decade of passive investing outperforming is coming to an end. And we're seeing that a lot this year and the volatility that we've seen this year. We're seeing a lot of active funds outperform. But I think thematic active managers um, are really showing their, you know, their, their highlights the past year or two. Um, and there's certainly, you know, from the infrastructure bill that was recently passed, there's a lot of, you know, tailwinds supporting funds like infrastructure funds and water funds and thematic funds that are looking at climate issues. You and I both do a lot of work with uh, advisory firms. In your case, it's other advisory firms. In mine, since I'm no longer in practice, it's, it is uh, from a consulting perspective. But what kinds of educational dialogues are effective in helping advisors in our industry understand how to approach not only the risks of climate change, but the opportunities that get created for their clients' portfolio strategies. Well, you know, shameless plug, you and I worked on the ESG playbook um, that our right. channel hosted. And I think that is one of the better educational tools that is out there. Um, mm -hmm. This uh, Morningstar has done some good work in that place, and, and certainly TIP 
and uh, uh, Bill Burkhart. Um, their their book, Twenty First Century Investing, is a great look at that. It is great. Um, there's also a new book uh, by Robert Palau, Values Based Investing, or that's quite good. So I, I think the resources are coming. I think it's been one of the negatives of our industry is that asset management firms have not been doing enough education because, you know, it, it's just so interesting. They're the ones putting out all the product, but they're not doing a lot of work on education um, around that product. And I, I mean, look, part of it is you don't want people taking money out of your old product and putting it in your new product. You're building new product for people that are new prospects or new clients, but there's just a ton of education needed with the older, you know, baby boomer advisor on a lot of issues that, you know, we have not had to deal with. And I think the demand for education is great. I mean, we've seen over 2,300 people take the ESG playbook and mm-hmm. lots of those people have gone back, you know, two or three times to review the materials in that playbook. Um, so I, I think it, it's a huge gap in our industry and, you know, we're, we're two people. So we certainly can't fill that gap, you know, ourselves. We really need other firms. InvestNet is starting to do a lot around education. So I, I think it's coming. And also I think climate change is easier than ESG. You know, when it comes to ESG, it's, very confusing between what ESG is and what values investing is. And there's a lot of blurred gray lines um, coming from all different areas, coming from product, coming from training, coming from firms on what is ESG. Is it values-based investing? Is it value investing? Is it data? Is it an investing theme? Um, you know, you know my position on this. I think it's data and it's completely different than values-based investing. But Climate change is very specific. And what came out of COP26 is this commitment by 2023 for um, the European body to start regulating how carbon is being reported and, and use of carbon and carbon emissions. And most companies that have already agreed to the SFDR, to the European regulations, will jump on to the regulation around carbon reporting. And it just, it's an easier conversation to have with the client. You know, it's very simple to understand climate risk. It's all around us today, unfortunately. And I mean, Ida, you know, was a huge example, the Northwest heat wave, you know, just this year, we've had two horrible examples of what climate change can do. Um, So that conversation is easier but the products aren't really, you know, there yet. I, I think we're the only real climate strategy that focuses on adaptation as a total theme across the portfolio. Um, I'm sure there'll be a lot more coming soon, but um, we need more education and we need more product for sure. Now, because you're in that role uh, as uh, uh, pushing the trend forward from that perspective around climate investing, uh, you've also structured a way for other advisory firms to take advantage of the work that you've been doing in that area over the last few years. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, it it, it was not a well thought out business strategy at first, but when <laughs> when we started doing conferences, 
advisors started asking us if we were doing all this research and putting together portfolios, would we offer those portfolios as outsourced CIO or outsourced portfolios or more like TAM portfolios? And, you know, it took time, but um, we started offering mutual fund models back in 17. And then 2020, um, in April, we launched our UMA um, climate focused models. And those models, I, I think, are you know kind of the bellwether for the industry of where advisors should be thinking about going. First of all, they're UMAs, which for people that don't know what that is, it's taking SMAs and wrapping them under one umbrella in one custodial account under one contract. So you don't need a separate contract for each SMA manager that you take in or put back into a model or a portfolio. And it allows you to run tax overlay strategies on all the managers at one time inside one custodial account. So the end client is getting you know, their cost basis in every single position. There's some great tools out from BlackRock that are offered for free. If you want to look at like, if, if you put together a mutual fund portfolio today um, and look at the embedded capital gains that are coming in that mutual fund portfolio because the last 12 years of returns that we've seen versus being able to buy all those positions, let's assume the portfolios are exactly the same, in a UMA where the client's getting new cost basis on day one in every one of those positions and avoiding all of the embedded capital gains in the funds. For that reason alone in today's environment, and because we're looking down the road, I'm sure, at higher capital gains rates, there's really no good reason in an after-tax account to be running a mutual fund model for a large client versus a UMA portfolio. Now, then secondarily, the UMA portfolio allows clients to weigh in on their values. Back to that conversation, we can do all the ESG data and build that into the portfolios. We can do all the climate risk and build that into the portfolios. But what if a client also has Catholic values that they want to espouse across their portfolio or Sharia law um, you know, compliance that they want to um, take care of? Or they don't want tobacco or they want it to be a fossil fuel-free portfolio. Those are client-level restrictions that can be levied by the client independently in each model. So you think about it for the advisor, the advisor no longer has to create a model portfolio for every single client that comes in. They have one model that meets ESG and climate, and then the end client gets to vote with all their values onto the portfolio and layer them on top of all the initial work that we've built. And you get a customized portfolio for every single client with no additional work levied by the advisor. And Natixis runs the trading and the um, portal. So you're seeing, you know, sleeve level performance with every manager, but it's all commingled into one custodial account for the end client. It's really, it's the future of investing. And we're seeing it. I mean, we're seeing, you know, JP Morgan bought Just Invest. Vanguard bought, or JP Morgan bought Open Invest. Vanguard bought Just Invest. Mm-hmm. Uh, Goldman Sachs bought uh, Folio. They, they're all buying direct in- indexing tools so that they can do these values-based layering for the end client um, and hold individual level security performance. What's different between direct indexing and what we're doing is that we're using active managers, and I think the timing's right for that. And we're doing specific, you know, climate-themed adaptation strategies within the portfolio. 
Jeff, this is all fascinating. Uh, I want to, and I want the opportunity for our listeners to hear more about it, but we're just about out of time today. Fortunately, you're going to join me on a panel uh, fairly soon on December 8th, and we can continue this conversation then. That will be on the Bright Talk Summit on December 8th. So I look forward to further conversation at that time. Uh, for today, please tell our listeners how they can contact you and where online they can learn more about Gitterman Wealth Management and Gitterman Asset Management's climate-focused portfolio strategies. Yeah, GittermanAsset.com, and you can get all the information about our firm and our offerings, and also the great repricing report that Paul mentioned is available and can be downloaded at GittermanAsset.com. And if you go to the impact, the T-H-E, impact.io, you can, for the next 10 months or so, see the entire conference, the four-day great repricing conference that we put on. It's free and it's available archive for uh, a year from September. So um, definitely check it out. Paul's there and he does a great job. <laughs> Thanks again, Jeff Gitterman, co-founding partner and creator of Sustainable Impact and ESG Investing Services at Gitterman Wealth Management. And to our listeners, please join us again next week for another episode. I'm Paul Ellis, your host for the Sustainable Finance Podcast.